you little chickadees, welcome to Freaks and Treats, the podcast where we talk about everything freaky and delicious. I'm your host, Sarah Keel. And I'm your other host, Ella Keel. And I profusely debate the fact that this might be delicious. This bake of the week has been an absolute palaver. I honestly don't know what to do about this. I it's, it's such a mess. I just feel like, obviously you saw me at the height of it when you came in and I was just like, I don't know what to do. Honestly, it looks like a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's an absolute mess. I just, yeah, for people that didn't know, um, I was supposed to be making French fancies this week for our podcast, simply for the fact that it felt in line with what we're going to be doing with the case. And there is nothing fancy about this. This is basically the equivalent of a chav making a podcast. That's what this is. A, ch- a, a, a chav making a bake, should I say. It's really, really bad. I'm not looking forward to eating it. It's staring at me. It's taunting me, Sarah. It's actually taunting me, going, ha ha, you have to eat me. I mean, it could be worse. It could be one of the other ones. Basically, one of them Ella managed to get looking half decent, and the others... Eh. Yeah. And it's, it's not coming at a great time. I am stressed out of my organ at the moment. <laughs> just with uni stuff. I'm just so stressed out, because I've got a class tomorrow. Um... Which actually you might find really interesting and it's actually quite relevant to what we're studying today. It's this idea of gender. I even managed to bring up Glee in an episode. How the F did you manage to bring Glee into that? I think we were talking about sort of um, the differences between um, the way females are treated against uh, males. We were talking about definitions of um, gender, like how many of them there actually is. Like I usually just think of male, female, not uh, you know, woman, man, non-binary. But there's so many. I didn't even realise that there was a word. I can't remember what it is. A word for someone who's going through a transition um, from female to male, or sorry, from woman to man but they end up pregnant during that transition. So they're still halfway through a transition, but pregnant. There's a word for that. Oh, what's the word? I, I just told you I can't remember. <laughs> I need to look it up. People who are aware of this sort of thing, they can obviously let us know. But yeah, the actual um, class itself was really interesting. We're talking about, um, sorry for bringing this up again, but we're talking about sexual assault and how the way people are treated differently if you're um, a boy. Particularly the episode where um, one of the boys said that he was having a sexual relationship with his babysitter who was older than him oh i remember that and how the boys said how are you not sort of bragging about that and i'm like if that was a girl that would not be the same thing exactly so yeah, it's, i remember that actually. yeah but sort of like the, the the interesting thing about this case we're going to be looking at is the fact that it does involve a woman committing a crime and that in itself is a really interesting sort of way to look at things because we are so used to seeing men in the media being depicted as criminals it's very rare for us to have a woman particularly when the crime happens to be murder yeah when it's a violent crime you're more likely to think of it being a man yeah exactly so i think that class is actually helping me a little bit but yeah how are you <laughs> i'm all right um not as stressed out as me <laughs> no one's as stressed out as you <laughs> mm, hold on is that my hair on the floor i've been pulling it out <laughs> So you're going to say, is that my hair on fire? (laughs) (laughs) Don't tempt me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty much the same as last time. I'm fine. I'm living. I'm alive. And you went wedding dress shopping today without me? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit jealous, but yes, for for all people... you're not. For people who don't know, Sarah is getting married in September. Fingers crossed. And she already has... she's, She's such a princess. She already has one dress. She wanted another. Because my dress is really heavy. <laughs> it's the most first world problem you've ever heard. My wedding dress is too heavy and I can't dance in it. My, ice my diamond sculpt- shoes are too tight. <laughs> my ice sculpture keeps melting on my hands. <laughs> yeah, don't get an ice sculpture, <laughs> just in case. That's is the most pointless thing I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe you went without me. I'm so sad. Because I'm supposed to be the maid of honour. Are you really, though? Did you really want to sit with us and watch me try on dresses? Not really. Should I be referring to myself as matron of honour, then, seeing as I'm married? I still like chief bridesmaid. Chief bridesmaid? Chief bridesmaid is like what I was going with. Mm. Okay. Do you want to be called a matron? Kind of. Because <laughs> it, it makes me sound like the Trunchable from Matilda. It makes me sound quite harsh and like, don't fucking mess with me. It's a wedding, motherfuckers. I'm a matron. Why do you sound like Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> Oh my god, I would love to just behave like Samuel L. Jackson. 
<laughs> just go up to people who are eating a burger. Guess what they call that in France? A royale with cheese. <laughs> I'm going to be the best motherfucking bridesmaid you've ever seen. <laughs> Sorry for those people who are hearing me swear. Again, I realise it. Our mum has just left, actually. I should this say this. She was trying to help me rectify all of the wrongs of my make. And... <laughs> She went, you're swearing an awful lot today, Ella. And I went, am I? Fuck you. <laughs> no, I do need to stop swearing. Because I think what we might need to do is bite the bullet and try and eat this bloody cake. Yeah. <laughs> bloody cake is it very is. apt. It's very, it's red icing. So, yeah, there, but it does. It, when I said it looks like a bloodbath, I'm not kidding. It, well, it actually fits in with the case a little bit well, because not only is it set in France, it's quite a, a, a I think it's quite a fancy colour, red. It's quite luxurious. It's quite, well, do you know what? I'll explain that more in the podcast yeah. when we actually get started to the case. But um, yes, I tried to put cherries in it as well, because I like the idea because there's marzipan in it. And there's cherries in the actual sponge. I was trying to make a sort of Battenberg-inspired French fancy. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit cherry bakewell-ish. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of cherry, sorry, cherry bakewell is what I meant, not Battenberg. Um, because so many French fancies don't even put marzipan in their French fancies anymore. No. Or fondant fancies, as they call them nowadays. Non-branded. <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, I tried to even put um, whipped cream, not what do you call it, whipped cream, um... You said you tried to make meringue. Didn't meringue is not. It's, I didn't mean whipped cream. I meant meringue, and I did two attempts at it, and it would not set. I even started eating it raw because it tasted really nice in the first batch, and I went, "I should not be eating this because <laughs> it's just liquid white egg. I mean, yeah. it's not healthy, <laughs> but it looked so pretty. Oh, sorry, I didn't look. It tasted so nice, but it did not look pretty. It didn't work so well. It did not work so well. So I'm, we ended I'm up. I'm meringue. I know. I'm <laughs> But I did I'm end- sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> I did end up going back to the, um, what is the typical one? Is it buttercream? Yeah. Buttercream in the middle. So, yeah, I think we should try and give this a go. Are you oh, ready? Let's go for it. Three, two, one. This is the worst thing I have ever made. <laughs> this is literally the worst day of my life. I'm just going to pretend the fondant's not there. The fondant is too much. I think because there's no flavour to the fondant. I added vanilla to it. Did you? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> mm. Hey, I had vanilla. Oh, wait, I didn't. <laughs> I am actually not even going to take a second bite of this because I want to throw it ag- across the wall and hit something with it. It is so sad. Fortunately, you brought cookies. <coughs> Are you okay? <laughs> Crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> That's her gagging on the disgustingness. Sponge is nice. And the buttercream is nice. We'll just pretend the fondant isn't there. Yeah, but you bought cookies. I'm, I'm I did. I bring. I brought. I come bearing cookies and blondies and brownies from the bakery that I work in. Yeah, they they should actually taste nice. I will honestly go to bed just reliving this day and then go. I am never baking again. You might actually never get a bake from me ever again. This is not a longer a freaks and treats. It's just freaks. Say it is the treats part. I'm the freak that can't make a fridge fancy. I don't want to be bitchy about it, but like I suddenly feel a little bit better about my cinnamon buns. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, this whole time I've been slagging off the way your bakes look, and I've literally got just a sort of slab of carcass over sitting on my cu- my kitchen counter because all that red just makes it look. What's weird about it is the fact that the the buttercream in the middle just makes it look like a a, a, lob, a lump of butter. It does. It looks like a, one of those little lumps of um, whipped butter that you put, like that you get in pancake shops that you put on a stack yes! of pancakes. Oh, do you know what? I actually really want to get into this case now because I know we're 10 minutes in and all I've done is me cry and rant. And I actually want to talk about a little bit of murder to cheer myself up. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. The title of this episode is called Marguerite Alibert From Prostitute to Murderous Princess. Are you intrigued? I am. Okay, so this is taking place in um, the turn of the 20th century in Paris, France. When and you say turn of the 20th century, do you mean like... Sort of the turn, like the um, 1900s. Right, okay. That kind of period. Right, That's okay. the time period we're going to talk from just oh, before okay. that, okay, up so until like... the 1920s, because that's the time frame that we're talking about. Okay, got you. So it is involving a woman named Marguerite Alibert, and I should say that I've been very keen to do this case for a wee while, 
Um, you have, you have, you mentioned this to me ages ago. Yeah, it's, 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 it may not seem that sort of fantastical or, or shocking, but there's so much about this woman's life. This woman herself is just such an interesting person to cover because she's lived such a life and it's she's very morally I would say divisive you can't necessarily agree with everything that she's doing but you can try and understand so to start with Marguerite Alibert was born in Paris on the 9th of December 1890 to Marie Orand I think is how you pronounce it she was a housekeeper and Froom Alibert who was a coachman it's basically like a taxi driver of the day Um, so her parents, although they were poor, they worked for an upper class and Marguerite grew up in an area where they were all really cultured and educated. So she was always really close to this sort of pristine upper class rich life, but never really part of it. So this meant that she grew up doing a lot of things like horse riding and learning to read music and various other forms of literature and visiting the theatre. Um, so she was essentially on the outside a well brought up proper lady at least by her learning and activities, but she wasn't because of the class that she was in. She was still on that outside. And I feel like that's an important thing to mention about her. She was always aware and close to the upper class, which meant she was always trying to retain that. Mm -hmm. She was always even ashamed of her upbringing that she tried to, to mask that by saying how intelligent she was and things like that. So she was quite well known as being very beautiful. Uh, She had this sort of dark hair and eyes. She had this kind of sort of mysterious look about her. Mm. And her her parents had plans to marry her off to a well-to-do sort of wealthy family. But then tragedy struck. Um, So on Marguerite's watch, her four-year-old brother ran into the street and was knocked down by a van that killed him. So Marguerite's parents, they totally blamed her for this. They just saw her as a troubled child. Um, So they sent her to St. Mary's Convent. And it was there that she really changed forever because Marguerite's parents had obviously blamed her, but then so did the nuns. And they would make her feel guilty. They would say, you killed your brother. How could you do that? And they would beat her. And then it was... That's not very Catholic. It's not... Oh, come on. That's not very Christian of you. That's nothing like Sister Act. What's this shit? I know. Maggie Smith would be as... Would just be... Locking you away. She'd yeah, be, be. but it does remind me slightly of the sister, uh, the Magdalene sisters. If you've ever watched yeah, that, it's a, so if you think about um, nuns, they they did used to beat her. That's what they, essentially they did to poor uh, Marguerite. They beat her, and it was upon this that she became quite uh, willful and headstrong, which is something to note about her. That she, her personality from here onwards will always be very fuck you, I'm Marguerite Alibert, I'm going to do what I want, that type of person. She's very headstrong and very independent. Um, She would often act out against them. So it was at the age of 15 that she ran away from this convent and she didn't tell her family where she was going. So when her family finally found her, she was pregnant. It's, it's hard to know whether this happened at the convent or whether this happened afterwards, we don't know. So do she's know her age? She was um, 15, I said. Yeah, so when she ran away, she was 15 and she was found to be pregnant. She said um, that the father was a son of an English nobleman who, although he did love her, he didn't have permission to marry her because of her station, like because she essentially was a working class girl. It sounds like a film. (laughs) It's, It's already a film. Yeah, it should be. It really should be. So at 16, she gave birth to a daughter whom she called Ramonde. Ramonde? Ramon sounds like a masculine name, but apparently it's a girl. It's a a daughter. She gave birth to a daughter named Ramon. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. I am not French. So Marguerite struggled to support her daughter for the first few years afterwards, and she was very transient. She would go place to place and search for work and didn't really find anything. She then sent her daughter um, to a farm where she could be cared for just because she couldn't care for. Kind of like the sort of baby farming things that I think we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, so unable to find work, Marguerite then turned to prostitution because she found it a very easy way to make money, which was a very easy way during this time, like to make money um, during this time period, you know, just coming up to the war as well. Everybody was sort of turning to this kind of thing as an easy way to make money, which is what she did. Um, this is all sounding very lemas. It's a little lemas, yeah, a little bit fallen woman. So she did turn to prostitution, and um, given the fact that she was very well spoken and attractive, she got a lot of business, as you can imagine. She also moonlighted as a singer during this time, where she would leave with wealthy men from the bar. Mm-hmm. Now, at this time, Marguerite was still only at the tender age of sixteen. Can you imagine doing all this at sixteen? Yeah, she was approached by a woman called Madame Denart, or Denart, I can't pronounce, Denart. Denart. 
Um, she ran a brothel for high-class prostitutes, or courtesans, as they were called in then, that time. So she was wowed by Marguerite's intelligence, her beauty and her talents, and thought she would do well. So she took her on and trained her up to be a courtesan. At the age of 17, in 1907, she met the first of her husbands and married him, and she was quite in love with him. So his name was Andre Miller. He was a wine merchant who owned some stables, and he was pretty well off. He was also twice her age and was already married, so he never fully legally married Marguerite, um, but he bought her an apartment where she would stay in and hide her there, and she t- ended up taking his last name. Um, long-term mistress. A long, well, not maybe not that lad, long-term, because sadly um, for her, the relationship never lasted and ended in 1913. So he left so her... That's what, six years? About that, yeah, six years. So he left her 200,000 francs, which at that time was a vast amount of money. Um, she then had the money to start living out this luxurious life that she seriously wanted to start buying things and wanted to feel enough. Feel How much is 200,000 francs then? Equivalent roughly? I have no idea. But lots. Lots. Lots that she could start li- affording to buy expensive sort of like dresses, things like that, where she looked like she belonged in high society. So is that money that you could live off basically for the rest of your life? Like No, what? not quite. Especially not for Marguerite. Cause if, if you were frugal. <laughs> if you were frugal, possibly, but she is not a frugal person. No, she doesn't a, sound it. She likes the money, money, money. Money. So, as we'll see, this wasn't enough for Marguerite, who continued to be courted by wealthy men who then paid for the pleasure of her company, amongst many other things. And she's like, yes, I'm going to go on a shopping street. <laughs> That's exactly what she was basically like, pretty woman. She was Julia Roberts, except not nearly with as much heart, I don't think. <laughs> or as much teeth. Oh... <laughs> What? She's known for her big smile. She has a lot, like, I don't know. That seems like a weird thing to say. She has a lot of teeth, but she has a very big smile. I don't think she has any more teeth than more, most people. No, her, fight, just, her mouth is just wider than most people's. Yeah. I Honestly, I would love to have Julia Roberts' mouth. Yeah. And not in a, not les- not in a, not, not in a lesbian way. <laughs> oh my God. You're, we're born in two different ways. You're like, you're like, not in a lesbian way, and I'm like, not in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> the two sort of polar opposites of... <laughs> I'm thinking about sex, you're thinking about vinegarising something and then (laughs) preserving it in a jar. That's kind of worrying. So she wasn't like most courtesans. She was known for, at the time, being um, a lot more sexually adventurous, shall we say, than other girls. So she experimented a lot with things like BDSM and threesomes. She also enjoyed dressing up in a more sort of masculine form of clothing from time to time. So it was then in 1917, not long after her relationship with Miller, that she met Prince Edward of Wales. Now, do you know a little bit about him? I don't really know anything about him. Yeah, so at the time he was serving in France as a um, grenadier, I think is the word. A grenadier? He was basically serving as a guard um, officer in World War One. He was in France during um, World War One, serving in the military, essentially. Yeah. Well, Grenadier sounds fairly high-ranking. I've heard of Brigadier, which I think is like the highest. It was very, very high-ranking. High I mean, he was the Prince of Wales. He was in the... Well, in, yeah, I suppose you would expect. Yeah. Um, he'd already lost his virginity as well to a courtesan before he even met her. Um, so he was looking for someone well-experienced, shall we say, as well as being educated. He wanted to be able to have talk with her as well as bang, 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 shabam, um, which Marguerite, you could obviously imagine, definitely was. So a little background about Prince Edward VIII, who he was the one who abdicated the throne in 1936 so that he could marry an American divorcee. Oh, that one. He's that one. He's, he's that, the one, that one, so the Queen's um, uncle? I think so, yeah. So he was the one that was also accused of being a Nazi sympathiser during World War II due to his connections with Hitler. Yeah, even He was so much... Um, linked in with him at the beginning I should say at least that Hitler wanted to try and bring him on as a sort of um, like a confidant or someone that he could go to to try and help him with the, uh, the Nazi regime which he then went bugger this I'm not doing that <laughs> um, Edward I should say went I'm not doing this um, so they were introduced by a friend and they began a year-long whirlwind um, intense affair he, during this time, wrote her many letters, telling her very intimate and damning material about himself. Okay. And I'm going to go much more into this later because the letters do become really important. Right, okay. So after a year, Edward returned to Britain and then they broke off the relationship. Or should, should I say he broke off the relationship? And some say it's because Edward had fallen for an aristocratic married British woman. Uh, Marguerite 
took this pretty hard, shall we say, and was angry for his betrayal. She then decided to keep these letters as a form of blackmail and demanded money from the prince in order to keep her silence, which they did. They gave her some money. Yeah, exactly. She's like, well, I'll use this to my advantage. She then soon after married her second husband, which I should say is her first legal husband, not her, it's, it's her first second husband to her, but her first legal one. I'm sorry, can you remind me what happened with that first one? He was married. He I kept her in a flat. Just, and he just sort of they just it. sort of broke it up and then it, um, it didn't last and then he gave her money. Okay, so nothing malicious there, just like, just didn't work out. Yeah, okay. essentially. And I think that's the difference between these husbands is that at least with the first one, she was in love with him. Okay. There was definitely love there. But the second one, I think it's very based on uh, money. Mm-hmm. So his name was Charles Laurent and also took, and she also took his last name the same way she did with uh, the first husband. But as this thing maybe? Mm-hmm. Maybe a status thing? It was definitely a status thing. It's saying, I belong. Um, but as before, after about six months, they ended up divorced and she received even more money as a settlement. It's not disclosed about how much, but you can imagine with a man of um, those means, he could probably afford it. He was, he was also quite well off. She doesn't marry people that are poor. <laughs> of course. So She's it's, rolling in it. Not so much. She's spending. This is the thing. Oh. She spends a lot because she's. This is the sort of thing. If you want to belong, you have to prove that you belong by buying, like having servants, having land, and this is what she was trying to do. She wanted to be independent and prove to people that she was one of them. What to do that? She needs the money. Exactly. So she's just going to spend it all. Exactly. So at the age of thirty, she had accumulated a lot of wealth and was living a life of luxury as an independent woman. A woman. Um, she was yeah, a living independent in quotes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she was living an extravagant um, lifestyle and had a, an apartment in Paris in a very sort of affluent area. She had two horses. She had limousines. She had vast amounts of clothes and jewelry. Limousines. What, what time? Time was this? It's cars or something. I think she had something like that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm picturing like a stretch limo. <laughs> I, th- I think it's it's something to do with that. Um, Sticking her head out the top going, woohoo! <laughs> yeah, so she had all of this and she also had um, servants as well. So she had a lot going on. Um, she had everything that she wanted. It was only then that she brought her daughter, Ramond, back from the country and paid for her to have a first-class education. So at this whole point, her daughter's still in a farm somewhere and her mum's living it up. <laughs> Um, but as you can imagine, as I've said before, her money soon began to fall um, and she was in need of a new benefactor. So it was then she seduced her third husband, Ali Camille Fami, And I am 100% apologising for any mispronunciations of the names here because I'm not the best. Um, so in 1921, she met him and he was also eight years her junior. It's a bit of a first for her. She's always went for um, older men. I should also say that um, Edward was, I think, a few years her junior as well. Um, So I think a lot of people looked at her because she was quite educated and she had an an, an air of sort of um, being able to take care of people. And maybe that's why she went for a lot of the younger men um, with her husband and with Edward, the fact that they looked up to her. Mm. So she's what, like 31? 30. So she's 30 when she meets Ali. Um, He was an Egyptian businessman um, who she met on her visit to Egypt while she was escorting another businessman there. So she's just like, I've got some free time. It's it's networking, you know? It's networking, yeah. Uh, So she's seducing this man while she's working as a courtesan for this other man. Yep, that's it. Moonlighting. Did you ever watch Secret Diary of a Call Girl? Uh, yes. There was a whole episode where she did moon, moonlighting, so it was an overnight That's the one with Billy Piper in it. Yes. Yeah, I actually really like that. Yeah, I really like it. Yeah. I wish they would bring that back. Um, so, yeah, while she was there, she, she met him, and um, Ali wasn't an actual prince, we should say. This is where the so thing... about not Prince Ali? Prince Ali, fabulous. He's not, unfortunately. He does he's not, not have he's 60... He's not Ali Ababwa. He does not have 6,500 golden camels or peacocks or... What else did Prince oh, Ali have? 60 he elephants. He did not have any... Well, he actually might have had this. We don't know. Um, but so, he didn't have a blue genie. He did not have a blue genie, no. <laughs> didn't have Robin Williams following him around doing impressions. <laughs> does anyone really want that? I do. <laughs> Just to bring him back? Yes. 
Okay, so his title, even when he wasn't a prince, his title was pronounced B, um, B-E-Y. Which... Not B-E-Y, like, like my B. B-E-Y, is that not how you pronounce B? Oh no, it's no, B-A-E, I'm, isn't it? I'm, I'm thinking of B-A-E. Yeah. <laughs> my B. My B. No, um, so Bay basically means lord or governor. Okay. So he was treated in the eyes of at least by Egyptian society as prince um, because he had lots of um, royal influence, okay. um, which then meant in the eyes of the Egyptian sort of like people that once Marguerite had married him, she was seen as the princess. So she then became known as a princess in the media. And she, and she knows this and she's like, cha-ching, I get yeah. that. Yeah. So he himself was very different from Marguerite. He was conservative. He came from a Muslim background, um, but nevertheless, he fell for her. He fell head over heels for her. So in order for her to be able to marry him and get a lot of the money, she had to convert to Islam, which she did. But this had serious consequences for her. So it took away, I think, a lot of her freedom. She was used to having um, a lot of this freedom, but then she was told to have to cover up her body and commit only to him. Now, for someone like her, you can't really imagine her doing that. No. So part of the clause of their marriage agreement was that she should still be able to wear Western, I should say, modest clothing and be granted a divorce. Now, the divorce clause was sneakily thrown out at the last minute and replaced with one that said Ali could take many other wives which he did. He also refused to, to divorce Marguerite once they were married. Yep. catch. Well, I mean, it's, it's a very different way. Of, she shouldn't have married him in the first place. I think that is the tale here is the fact that she shouldn't have married someone that was so very different in her background. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so the two did continue to be together. So they travelled all around the world um, and they were actually two of the first people to ever view Tutankhamun's tomb when it was discovered. Oh. Yeah, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but nevertheless, she felt trapped by this, and this caused her to become really angry and sort of resentful towards him. So the two quarrelled um, constantly. They were at it like cat and dog. They were doing it in public, and people obviously noticed this. Um, and there were times where he, um, she said that he would hit her behind closed doors, and she was expected to be this submissive wife, which, as we know, this was just the complete opposite of who she was. I mean, she had grown up to be liberal. She was very sexual and independent and very in charge of herself. And living the life of a Muslim wife, particularly at this time of the early 20th century, it had become a sort of pain for her, um, especially since it was something that she felt like she couldn't escape, like she had done with the other marriages. It was like, right, how do I get out of this? I'm trapped with this oppressive lifestyle that I've made for myself what do I do yeah imagine like with a lot of what she's doing to get the money it's to get that feeling of that independence and that power and that's exactly and this is is exactly the opposite it's kind of it's kind of ironic in a way isn't it a bitter irony as they say so they would often argue in public as I said Marguerite was said to humiliate Ali with her behaviour um, she told people that he hit her, as I said, and there were rumours going around that he was actually homosexual, I should say. That's the word they're using, not me. Um, which Marguerite had speculated on as he had forced her to have, in quotes, unnatural sex, causing an injury. When we say unnatural sex, I think we're talking about, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where are these rumours come from? Has she spread them or someone else? Well, the, she's saying that he's caused a lot of this, but I think there might have also been other rumours in the, the culture at the time of him. The okay. fact that he maybe hadn't been seen with a lot of women before this as well. And then... But and I think People just like to spread rumours. But I think a lot of it has come from Marguerite as well by saying stuff like this. So basically, she said, we had anal sex and they're like, oh, gay. It might be. It might possibly be that. I mean, we'll... you, you must like it. You must. You must like men then. <laughs> I was about to say something really, really dirty there, but I won't. <laughs> Family are listening to this. <laughs> so she continued to write down a long list of these abusive allegations against Ali towards her, which then led people to believe that she was going to use it against him for sort of a large divorce settlement. However. This turned out to definitely not be the case, which then leads us into the fatal events in London. And this is getting us into the crime itself. Mm. So how are you feeling so far? How are you, how are you feeling towards Marguerite herself? Like, What kind of person do you think she is? 
as I said, I think it's a lot of like you know wanting to sort of gain independence and power for her, mm-hmm. um, which I can understand given her background. But a lot of people have also said the fact that you know the fact that she was taking so much money from all of these men, how shallow she was, and that so she seems quite manipulative in a way a lot that, that I think that's oh, why people sure. that's why people kind of turned against her because at least in, in modern day society when people have researched her before they don't see her in a very likable quality but I think it's necessarily it's not necessarily about looking about the things that she did but it's about looking at why and then you can find in some ways why that would be so not necessarily defensible but you could understand her reasoning for doing these sort of things because she always had this pressure even from a young age yeah completely we hear the ice cream van. There we go. It's February. Oh yeah, they sell drugs. Right, it's it's yeah. the drug ice cream van. <laughs> yeah, we've got one around our bit as well, and it only comes in the winter time. I've never actually been. Not that I do drugs in any way. I'm just wondering what what kind of drugs they're selling. <laughs> I have no idea. I always I always assumed it was something yeah. dodgy. I assumed it was some kind of drug, but I don't know. I wonder if this is a thing. If this is just a Glasgow thing, <laughs> or if this is maybe a, a sort of a, a British thing in general, like ice cream van at night in winter automatically means drugs. <laughs> I think this might just be a Glaswegian thing. But do you think anyone ever goes to it asking for ice cream? I wonder if anyone actually goes to it asking for drugs and it turns out they're just like, it's, it's ice cream, man. What are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm thinking of your trip where they're like in the bakery and you go for the pot brownies and they're just like, no, this is simple Dutch bakery. <laughs> She's literally grabbing fries off of people's plates and he's like, I feel paranoid. I have to take my shirt off. That's so the sort of thing we would do. I would quite. I know you've been to Amsterdam. I would love to go to Amsterdam. Amsterdam's lovely. Is is that what it's like? Is it just filled with high people? I don't know. We we stayed in, in, in during the night time when that would happen. <laughs> yeah, and then we during stayed... the day you went to a sex museum. Technically, that was in the evening, actually. Well, there you go. But yeah, it was that, that the two was... sides of Amsterdam: drugs and sex. That was just a lot of people running around, going, ah, "Look at the penis! Ah, look at the thing of boobs!" And I'm like. And then there's me looking at like all of the pictures being like, this is really interesting from a sociological perspective. <laughs> Someone next to you is going, what a pretentious bitch. <laughs> it is really interesting actually though. I definitely want to go one day yeah, just to sure. have a sort of like, just so I can go, hee boobies. Actually, you know that sort of thing Lee would do. Yeah, no, you would be more like me. You would be like, it's really interesting. It shows you about the culture at the time of this mm-hmm. thing that was made hundreds of years ago in a different, in Japan. And Yeah, probably. I probably yeah. would do that. And then there would be other people going, mm-hmm, look at her vagina. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 will, I will be clear. There's also like a, a mannequin, like a, an animatronic mannequin that like flashes you. That sounds it's amazing. It's on a loop. Can I buy it? <laughs> That's how I want to greet people in the house. I mean, you could probably buy one somewhere. That does sound amazing, but I want I, I want it to be like a skeleton, you know, like a sort of thing that you could use during Halloween. So it's like a, a, skeleton, <laughs> a skeleton that flashes you. you. I'm showing you everything, literally everything. <laughs> I'm showing you my border. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Get out. <laughs> All right, You've so- gone up the sex museum. <laughs> Right, I know we need to get back into the actual yes. case. I think that that's a sort of a nice little... It's not even a segue into it, but... It's a nice little um, detour. Palette, palette cleanser before we get into the murder. Yeah. So, yeah, big spoiler, she does murder him. You said that at the beginning. <laughs> I know, I know. So on the 9th of July, 1923, the couple visited the Savoy Hotel in London. Very fancy place. And that night, they went along with their secretary because they were always surrounded by people. Um, they went to see the play, The Merry Widow. Oh. Talk about irony. <laughs> um, so they... Ooh, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> I think it's the merry part as well. It's a little yeah. Long. So they arrived back at the hotel and then they had a late supper. Then they left for their bedroom and... Like many times before them, they ended up getting into a very heated argument. This time, however, the argument went too far. So around 2am, three gunshots were fired and Marguerite shot Ali execution style. Do you know basically what execution style means? What is it exactly? Basically in the back. Um, She shot him with a Browning 32 pistol um, that had been hidden under her pillow. Now... You can look at this in what way you want. Possibly self-defence, possibly premeditated. We don't know. So she saw him three times, once in the back, once in the neck, and once in the head. 
Mm-hmm. This, this is all from uh, from behind him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always from behind him, exactly. Which kind of yeah, makes you think. Yeah, in the self defence argument. Uh, very, very, very. I think so. Um, so upon hearing this, as I said, there was lots of people around. People discovered this very quickly afterwards. The porter and some of her servants, um, and they reported her, and they, um, the police arrested her in London. She was reported as saying to them, No, hold on, let me pronounce this because I want to get my French right because I don't do it often. Qu'est-ce que je fais, mon cher? I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, which means, what have I done, my dear? She also told the porter, j'ai perdu la tête. Can you kind of guess what that means? I something in your head. Mm. It basically translates in two different ways. It means I either lost my head or I was frightened out of my wits. Mm. Um, so Ali was taken to hospital. He didn't die straight away, even though he was shot in the head. But he was pronounced uh, less than an hour later dead. So, here goes to the trial. The trial is very interesting. So, the trial of Marguerite opened on the 10th of September 1923. Now, her defence, as you said before, it was self-defence. She said that it was self-defence and that he tried to strangle her and then he came towards her first with the pistol where then she managed to get the gun from him. And then we both reached for the gun. Oh my God, it's totally that! Do you know, it's hilarious that we're talking about it. It's very Chicago-esque. It's both taking times in the 20s, around about this sort of yeah. 20s time. It's taking, you know, a woman shooting a man and then going to trial saying it's self-defence. That's yeah. It's very that. It's, very Chicago. it's also quite funny that I should say that I have been very inspired to write this as a musical. I've been sort of tinkering away. You, you've obviously known this for a while that yeah. I've been sort of one of the reasons I was been so moved by this is the fact that I have been trying to write about it in some varying form because I am or at least I try to be a writer on my off days um but yeah it's very Chicago-esque but it sounds too similar to Chicago does it sound too similar to Chicago no I think there's enough with the rest of it so I think it's a different situation but it does have that similar um defense of it of it just it, it does sound very much like the defence that uh, Billy Flynn was giving. Oh yes, so oh, yes, so oh, yes, the both, oh yes, the both, oh yes, the both, reach for the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. <laughs> oh yes, the both, reach for the gun, for the gun. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm here all week. Try the veal. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, they did both reach for the gun in her defence. That was what she was saying. Her la- her lawyers portrayed Ali as this sort of violent, abusive, backward-thinking Middle Eastern man who, with homosexual tendencies, just took all of his rage out on his poor Western wife. Mm. Yeah, that was the kind of narrative that they were perpetrating. So the newspapers obviously ate this up and immediately came into the defence of Marguerite. Of course they did. Mm-hmm. A little pretty, bit of... Uh, pretty white women, I guess. Just a little bit of early racism for you. Of course. So the prosecution prosecution felt with the evidence it should be a sort of open and shut case that she was definitely guilty, but they needed more. And so they attempted to use her background of prostitution against her. Mm. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Marguerite, being as shrewd as she was, had obviously kept the letters from Edward as leverage. So they used this to their advantage. The uh, the, uh, defence used this to their advantage. So she had never gotten rid of these letters after all this time, even after being married. Well, well, of course you don't. You've got, like, dirt on a member of the royal family. Exactly. Of course you don't get rid of that. I should say, these letters were pretty wild. So with Edward, he would often tell her about his sexual fantasies, as well as saying pretty unkind things about the royal family itself, including... I hope everyone heard that in the podcast this tiny little (laughs) what a pathetic sound hold on are you coming up you're in my seat I want to sit on you I want to sit on your lap so yeah as, as I was saying before these letters they were pretty wild so Edward would often tell her about sexual fantasies as well as saying unkind things about his dad um, he also s- said things about the war which could have been misinterpreted so had the prosecution attempted to bring this up um, bring this up in her history they would have opened themselves up to exposing these letters 
Now, the English royal family, upon hearing this, because they knew about the letters, this was a big thing, they didn't want any of their secrets getting out and they would do everything and anything they could to stop it. The PR team was having a meltdown. Essentially, that is essentially what the, what would happen is, is the PR team back then were just going, shit, this woman's going to tell Damage everything. control! Yeah, exactly. So they made a deal with the official uh, London courts that made sure that nothing about her past was allowed to be brought up in court. Nothing about her past. Nothing about her past. What? Just related to um, just about related to family or in general. Her prost- prostitution, any of it. They had that was the deal that they made. Not a great deal, but that was what that they had to do. Terrible deal. Yeah, it's a terrible deal, but obviously well, a great deal for her. It was obviously the defense were working overtime as well, saying right, if they're going to do this, then we need to make sure that if they don't want it to get it done, then they're going to have to compromise, and that's essentially what the royal family had to do. Um, so this meant that the defence was able to paint this very, I'd say, racist, orientalist, damning picture of Ali without any sort of negative picture of Marguerite. It's very biased. Um, so they viewed this supposed sexual proclivities as proof of his amoral sadism, which was then taken out on his wife. Yeah. Right. Um, so this case became a spectacle. Like if it went to London in the papers... It wasn't just London. Everywhere in the world seemed to know what was going on and everyone wanted to know what the outcome was going to be. Um, so there was crowds and lives that would form outside the court and everyone wanted to know what was going to happen. And what's also quite, I think, strange is something like this is the fact that the trial only lasted five days. They reached a verdict in the 15th of September, just mm-hmm. five days after the trial started. Which is quite strange. Um, was it a jury or was it just... It was a jury as well and they voted. And they um, acquitted Marguerite of all charges and she was allowed to go free. I mean, when all the evidence that you're allowed to use is painting him in a bad light and there's no evidence painting her in a, uh, painting her in a bad light... Mm-hmm. It's, it's all just painting him in a bad light, then... It's basically viewing him as this... Exactly. And also it's important to say what time of what time period we're set in. This is the early 20th century. We're not as progressive yet. And um, there were pain- people being homosexual. That was a very big thing back in those days. So having him, they'd already turned against him, even just hearing something like that. But having, I think, this kind of Middle Eastern viewpoint, This I, I'm going to go into this a little bit more in regards to when we explore this later, but this time period was very orientalist. So people already had a sort of um, stigma and a picture in their brain of what a Middle Eastern person would be like. Mm-hmm. And this obviously didn't help. It's, it's this Middle Eastern person has done something horrible to this white woman. She was obviously just trying to defend herself. That's the kind of image that's been painted in the newspapers. Yeah. And obviously the thing about her being a prostitute wasn't, used in the in the court so that wasn't really touched on as much yeah so they didn't have that as like a, something that would make her seem bad to them or like, mm-hmm. like she could be guilty yeah so after the trial after she was acquitted of all charges not even like manslaughter or anything it was just yeah there you go it's fine off you go uh she was ret- like yeah just you defending yourself what Oh, it doesn't matter. You should, he attacked you while he was facing away from you. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that I, f- I feel like... When he was coming back. He was He was coming for you, facing away. He was, like, backing up to you and saying he was coming for you. Yeah, exactly. That's what I always find really strange because he, as you said, was turned away. How did she get the gun? Was he running away after she got the gun? Because that could be it. Did he have the gun? Did he not have the gun? Yeah, I mean, just she, said, she said the gun was under her pillow. Was it his gun? Hmm. We don't. We, there's so many things about this case that I find so inconclusive and strange that the that the lawyers just haven't touched on. I'm even just thinking about the fact that the bullet wounds are in his back. But yeah, as I said before, if she has tried to wrestle the gun from him and he was trying to shoot her, he's obviously seen shit. She's got the gun. I need to run away. When you run away, your back's turned to someone. Right, okay. But then if he's running away, it's not really self-defense. Yeah, then why are you shooting him? He's running away from you and you've got the gun. I think it's it's the fact that you have to look at this and say, well, she really wanted out of this marriage as well. Maybe this was the only way it was going to happen. She's got a motive. She has definitely... Exactly, it's such a huge motive. But they can't bring this up. Because... 
royal family shit. Fuck the royal family. <laughs> Always because getting no in the can, way. Because no one can know about what Prince Edward... Is, Prince Ed, is it Prince, Prince Edward? Prince Edward VIII. No one can know about Prince Edward's shenanigans. Exactly. So, yeah, I think it's important to look at all this sort of stuff. Um, but first, before we get into the analysis of it, I'll, I'll just end with where she ended up in her life. So she returned to uh, Paris as Princess Marguerite. So she lived up to this name for the rest of her life as a princess. A name like Marguerite sounds like it should have princess before it. It does. Oh, I should name my child that. (laughs) If I ever have a child. Princess Marguerite Banana Hammock. Just princess. <laughs> oh, princess. No, well, we did. Do you know remember the, the name we used to come up with? Me and Vicky. It was uh, Princess Esmeralda Tallulabella Augustus Smith. Esquire. Esquire. <laughs> the third. Yes, they're all contradicting each other, I realise. Um, but yeah, so she went back to Paris and lived up to this name and lived out the rest of her life in luxury off of the wealth of these previous husbands as well as all these other men that she pursued afterwards. Because she didn't stop. She was a She was a free woman. She's like, right... Let's get boozy! And no one is get, none of these men are giving a shit. Like, either they don't know or they just don't care about Well, she had a bit of fame about her afterwards. That's the thing with something like that. It's kind of like looking, if you look at this in a contemporary case, if this were to happen nowadays, they'd be on, like, um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. They'd be doing Big Brother. They'd be doing all this sort of stuff. You'd be on Loose Women, you know, they'd yeah, be on their they'd be sell- on talk shows. Like, they totally would. They'd be selling their own book. Then a fitness DVD would come out. Princess Marguerite, get those abs you always wanted. <laughs> you know, you know that's what's gonna happen. But like, none of these men that she pursues after are, are remotely like, you know, put off by any of this. They're like, this doesn't seem like a bad idea. No, be fine. I'm not gonna get shot in the back. <laughs> I, just, I just won't turn my back to her. It's fine. I was going to say, as long as the sex is good, who cares? She knows what she's doing. Um, so her grandson found out after her death that she'd been living off of the money from settlements for five men. So she was obviously living at her life still with this kind of luxury, but she was having to space it out a little bit better. But yeah, five men giving her all rich, giving her settlements. Um, I mean, at least, at least I'm not dying. That's true. Like, so, like at least she's not a full-on black widow. Mm, so she actually sued Ali's family for ownership of the property afterwards, but then... The judge went, no. <laughs> after you killed him. After you killed him, I'm not giving you his house. Look at his family. Why are you licking my leg, cat? Um, she gained a few small roles in films afterwards. Obviously, like, as I said, the celebrity. So there is footage of what she looks like. I've got tons of photos of her. I would love to see pictures of her. I would, there's tons of photos of her. Um, she gained a few small roles in the films, but she di- died at, at the age of 80 in 1971. Still this time, the whole time, she kept the letters from Edward. Just as insurance in case she needed them again. In case she needed them again. Again, if you have that kind of dirt on the royal family, you are an idiot if you get rid of it. Exactly. And I'm not saying I would use it, but you just have it. Exactly. (laughs) Just just there just to look at. Um, But the family, once she died, they basically found the rest of the letters and destroyed them. As you should. I'm yeah. sorry, I don't think it's fair. It's essentially like the same sort of equivalent of nowadays if you were to send nudes. Yeah. I think someone could always use that against you. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a good thing to do. I'm just saying, like, you know. Someone sending the- you sexts and then going, see, I've still got that in a cloud somewhere. Don't destroy yeah. the cloud. That's essentially what it is. And I, I don't I don't like that at all. Yeah, I, I see your point. I think it's just because I don't like the royal family. I'm like... <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not exactly thrilled with them myself. It's but royal family, I mean... Would you not? Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the case itself. That's Marguerite Alibert. Mm. What do you think? Oof, what a life. What a life that woman did lead. It was so interesting to think that she used all of these men for money and yet people still loved her. She was still very well liked. It wasn't like even when she went back to Paris or even before she um, married Ali that she wasn't well liked or she was seen as a common prostitute. She was part of high affluent society. Mm. She was very well known amongst her peers, you know, and lots of people paid just to be with her. Just because she was so... I mean, there's an element of she was a high class escort rather than a... Maybe it's the fact that she was French as well. There's something about the French. (laughs) I love a French accent. <laughs> just don't listen to me ever speaking French again because I realise how... It's just, it's terrible. I'm supposed to be able to speak French, at least somewhat, and I wasn't able to pronounce that. Maybe it's nerves. I think that's it. 
Um, so yeah, I do think it's really important to look at the representation of her in the media of this time in contrast to her husband. As I said before, there was a very Orientalist way of looking at this. And if, for people who don't know what Orientalist or Oriental means, it's basically the way in which the West interprets and represents their view of the East, whether that be Middle Eastern or Far East. They'll either mystify them and see there is something exotic and then sexualize them, or if particularly if they're from the Middle East, they'll see them as backward or uncivilized and damn them. Um, and I don't think there's I feel like there's still elements of that even now. Absolutely. I should say this is ice cream back want some drugs? <laughs> ice cream back and vans back. Drugs. <laughs> Ice cream, ice cream drug man, would you like to talk about Orientalism? <laughs> but it is so something that we still see nowadays. We talk about this in university. I had um, a class last semester where this came up quite a lot, actually, and how a lot of our views of the, the West are so biased based on our own sort of systems that we have in place. That they're not 100% accurate. So when we're looking at someone like Ali of saying, well, he was taking lots of different wives, that was normal for the time. Yeah. And... Um, it's important that we're not trying to impound our own value system onto these countries. The or so this basically this is kind of very racist presentation of both of them made it seem like she was innocent. So whether you agree with her reasoning or not, it would still seem like she had all of this in control. Like as we'd said before, she's got all the motive. She wanted a reason to get out of this marriage. She was desperate. The fact that he wouldn't even give her a divorce during this time period. Why wouldn't he give her a divorce? Well, I don't necessarily know if they believe in divorce, especially at this time, if, if that's something that they would want. Plus, I think in some variety, he's, some way, he did love her. Mm. It, for her, it wasn't love. I think this was purely transaction. But for him, I think he did love her. And he was also younger, remember that. He was only 22 at the time yeah. when he met her. So that's really young. It was the same age I met my husband. Oh, yeah. Very innocent. I'm not going to say how old I am now. If, if any of you say 60, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think it's just really important to know that the way this is sort of portrayed in the media, like how do we think about women who commit crime nowadays in the media? They're, it, it really depends on the case. But with this one, I think they were, if to try and make her seem innocent, they had to have this kind of cultural view of something else to try and make her seem innocent if it hadn't been if, if this had been a white man a british man that she had shot this would not be the same thing it wouldn't be the same thing but you do wonder if there'd still be an element of you know making the women seem innocent and the, 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 demonizing the man mm-hmm. she was also known herself to be quite violent and had a temper on her so Especially since she's doing, I'm not saying that anyone who does BTSM in any sort of variety has a temper, but she was known to be very argumentative. It just goes back into her, I think, time in the convent. During that time, she wanted to be independent. She did not want to be spoken down to or beaten or anything like this. A lot of this must have been very triggering for her because up until this point, she had been in control. She had been the one that people wanted. She was independent. She was very sexually in charge of her life. We could wear what we wanted. She would see who she wanted to see. And all of a sudden, she puts herself in this position where she, that is completely taken away from her. Yeah, completely. Mm. So she must have felt in some ways, even if it was premeditated, I'm still defending myself because this isn't the life that I want. You always, like... It's it's easy to look at people who commit crimes like this and demonise them and think, oh, that was a ridiculous, crazy thing to do, but, like, it makes sense in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just... I, th- I think it's just the sort of the presentation of the way that she portrayed her husband to be, of Ali to be, that you never know how much of this is actually true. Completely. Ugh. How much of this has actually been because of Orientalist views at the time? How much of it is because she's been spreading these sort of things? And as I was saying before, people knew that she was writing a lot of this down. People thought it was because she was ranking up to being, or gearing up to have a divorce, a big divorce settlement. So she could say, look at all these things he does, give me money. Mm. Who knows if that was even going to happen? It does make sense though. If that would be what she would gear what what she wanted to do exactly. So the fact that I mean that would make much more sense than killing him. So 
I don't necessarily kind of passion, I guess, maybe. It could necessarily it could, it could be kind of passion. And the fact is the matter is the fact that this was one of the worst arguments they had ever had, obviously. But people knew <laughs> obviously. No, that one we had last week was a bit worse. <laughs> But you that know, one we had over over like the cereal bowl in the, in the sink, yeah, that was worse. You argue with Grant over cereal bowls. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the worst argument they've ever had. So it could have obviously escalated. as it could have escalated exactly as you said. It could have been a crime of passion, and and it, and it could also you know have something to do with you know maybe the fact he beat her or that he was aggressive to her. You know, it could exactly. be two people in the wrong here, not just one. Exactly, and. Does that necessarily mean she should have got away with it? I think she should have gotten something. Leniency or like probation or something along the lines of that. Manslaughter or something. That's exactly what I was saying before. She didn't even get manslaughter or anything. It was acquitted of all charges. Which I think nowadays... Which is bizarre because you did kill him. And Exactly. And people caught you. And I should say it's not like it was a... People were coming in after five minutes after hearing a gunshot. People were there literally like seconds after she shot him. The servants like, yeah, were there. It's like, yeah, we know you shot him. But it sort of takes away from this idea of it being premeditated because if it was premeditated, you would make sure that there was nobody around, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, I, I don't think any of this was premeditated. It doesn't make sense. Even the fact that she was said to have had the gun under her pillow. I mean, maybe they just have guns. like. But why under her pillow if it was his? Well, maybe it is a self-defence thing. Maybe she's scared. Could, maybe maybe not just of him, maybe of other people. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe that with their, their status, maybe they have big enemies. I don't know. Yeah. But I do think in this case, we're not just looking at the representation of women in the media. We're looking at representations of minorities in the media. Oh, yeah. And this is not something that's just singular or apparent to the early 20th century. We still see this nowadays all the time. And I think it's about looking at the sort of representation and thinking hermeneutically about it, about what's actually biased or unbiased about it. How, what, what, why are we looking at this representation and then taking it as truth? And there's also, I think, sort of like the sort of psychology behind it as well as people don't necessarily associate women with violent crimes. Although it does remind me of, do you remember that talk that we went to? It was to do with serial killers. Um, I think it was called Talking with Psychopaths. And they say that the three things that um, sort of motus, motus, was it operandi? Yeah. um, For women who murder is guns, cars and drugs or poisoning. And she fits into one of these, at least. She does, yeah. she does fit into this. If, as opposed to someone like, say, Eileen Warnos, who was a serial killer and... Didn't she, she use guns? She did use a gun, but a lot of her... She did it repetitively. It wasn't a crime of passion. It was a, as people would say later, premeditated. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about women, we always think crime of passion. They don't do it. They don't think about it. Because women don't think about stuff like this. Maybe it's just my maybe it's just me and all my interests in it, but like I do think of it as more I think of women killers as more the premeditated ones and the the covert ones. Do you? Yeah, that's where my mind goes. Honestly, my mind usually goes to poison. But yeah, again again this goes back to the way that when it's been researched, that is one of the main ways in which women kill is through poisoning. And guns is a is the second because it does relate back to this whole it's an immediate thing. If you're knifing someone, it's 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 contact. You have to do it over and over a lot of the time and it's not as... I think it's something to do with the level of contact involved. Exactly. Having a gun it's... makes you, it makes it removed. You're able to separate yourself from the crime. Yeah, and it's also, it could also be a strength thing. Again, a very good point, the fact... So, yeah. tr- so trying, for sort of women, say, trying to strangle a man, for instance difficult might be difficult to overpower him mm-hmm. depending on what their sort of dispositions are like of um weight and strength and stuff but exactly like, generally would be hard to for yeah. a woman to strangle a man so like you know you go for things that can get them down quickly yeah like running them over with a car exactly I guess. that works so glad you don't drive <laughs> But if you actually, I will um, post pictures of all the people involved and you look at Ali and he's not that large. He's actually quite small, but that doesn't necessarily make shit. he's probably still around. 
like at least her size, if not a little bit. Yeah, well, she was also quite small as well. I mean, even though she was known as being quite sort of like forceful and being almost like a dominatrix back in her day, she was quite... Actually, now that I think about it, there's this idea of power as well that she was very much involved with, including being this dominatrix. And this idea of sex and stuff, she had to be in control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose, I mean, I mean, it would be a whole discussion of why do people get into BDSM? Is there... Well, there's that, that's a whole other conversation. We could even touch on that on another day. Um, but I think what I'm touching on is the fact that she was always obsessed with the idea of being the one that had control, even going back to the fact that she used to like to dress like a man as well. It was this idea that she was the one that had the power. And then to go into a marriage where that is completely stripped from her and she's just been told to be a submissive wife who has no power and no say in anything. She's told what to do and that's the way everything must be. It must have been so completely baffling to her and then it's no wonder she ended up resenting him for it even though she was the one that put herself in that position it's no wonder that that she blamed him for that because this was his culture yeah and she wanted to be more um independent and she tried to get that as part of it and then yeah. he wouldn't let her but the fact that she i mean she must have either really wanted his money or felt something for him but to convert to islam itself and have an islamic wedding is not an easy feat it's not something you just do on a whim yeah and i'm do wondering did she feel something for him i, I honestly it's don't hard know to tell. it is really hard to tell and i think a lot of this is very speculative especially when we don't really have a lot of as we said, media or something to go on past what people have said through through the years. Mm. When it's something like this, everything, I mean, with any kind of crime case like this, it's all based through media. All our information is coming from media and there's, it's subject to media bias. Exactly. And I think when we're looking at someone like Marguerite, you really have to weigh up everything through motive and what actually happened at the time based on what kind of thing that she was exposed to mm-hmm. um but yeah i just I've, I've always just found this case really fascinating for these very elements alone just trying to find out what kind of person she was because she is such a divisive person such a divisive person in regards to the way people view her nowadays particularly when we look at women we think people who women who marry for money it's completely shallow and horrible and yet this was quite common for those days it wasn't something that poor people did rich people did it wasn't something that was completely unheard of it was almost normal back in those days to do because women didn't have the power to be independent yeah i mean that was kind of uh going back to bridgerton bridgerton and uh, if, if, if anyone's watched little women as well recently there's a whole big thing that um it's a speech that's made it's basically saying you know even if I were to have money and to have children they would never be truly mine they would be my husband's so don't look at um, marriage as if it's not a transaction or business because it always is at least to a woman that was Florence Pugh's character yeah I love her I love her hair now the fact she's cut it Oh, she got it. She looks awesome. Um, exactly, but we're not going into Florence Pugh. But I, th- I think the point I was trying to make. Just a podcast about how much we love Florence Pugh. I could, I could easily. Uh, Steve Buscemi and Florence Pugh. I had to get him in somewhere. Me. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just the idea that we look at this from a very contemporary lens nowadays, and we're not thinking about what life would have been like back then. Yeah. But having said that, she married lots of men and had her dalliances and took a lot of money. So. And, yeah, and sort of she spent could, it frivolously. She spent it frivolously, and but again, I think this was also the fact that she wanted to belong. She wanted to be part of high society because from a very young age, she was always close but not quite there. She was always surrounded by people who were very rich and had money and who would probably make her feel guilty for being the way she was, for being from a working class background. She would often lie, like even years later, she would still lie about her father's occupation. And even though he was a coachman, he'd say that he was other things, something that was far more respectable. Mm-hmm. So she was, she was very ashamed of her background, not just because it didn't have money, but because of every connotation that came with that. Because class is not just money, even nowadays. And I think this is me going into another big um, rant about class, but it's it's got cultural capital. 
nowadays it's very much the way you speak the words that come out of your mouth what you wear who you hang out with your education everything is tied into class there's almost like a moral thing placed on it as well like higher class or it gets to be a better person than exactly exactly and i think it's in it these are things that we look at nowadays but they were such bigger issues even then not just because of the cultural capital but because the divide between the rich and the poor was so vast because mm-hmm. we were still coming out of the period of the Victorians where we had things like workhouses and stuff, you know. Yeah. It was a very different thing now, back then. And I think it's very much important to look at her from a contemporary lens, uh, from a, from that sort of a different view of, as opposed to this contemporary lens that we look at her from. And when we do that, you might see a little more sympathy towards her, I think. And I think that's maybe why I love her as much as I do is because I can see these different levels. There's a lot of like explanation for the way her mind would probably work or look like mm-hmm. her motivations. There's a lot that you can explain a lot of it. And while I don't necessarily agree with it, I yeah, I do get where she's coming from. Yeah. So essentially, I think we should probably start wrapping this up. Probably. It's when I'm sort of looking at this from a sociological perspective. I think it's to look. It's important to look at the climate and the time in which this sort of crime happened with the woman and how she's being represented within the media. Mm-hmm. These are sort of things that I think are key, not just to this case, but also I think your case that you're doing next. I believe so. Because you're doing, let's just sort of like give people a teaser. Why have I forgotten her name? Casey Anthony. Casey it's bad Anthony. that I know what you're doing. Thank you. My head has been away. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the one that we're going to be covering on the next episode. I'm really, cause I know the case somewhat, but I'm not 100% versed in it. So it'll be interesting to see, because I know you are meticulous with your details. You will mm. be going into everything. Mm. Do you want to know when she was born? Do you want to know what season it was? Do you know want to know? Do you want to know what her shoe size is? Do you want to know, do you want to know what her favourite colour is? <laughs> I do, actually. I think <laughs> favourite colour says a lot about a person. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that we have gone on so long, particularly on that last wee sort of rant, because I think that some of you might have tuned out by now if you're listening at all. Um, too long, didn't read. Fuck the media. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry about the cakes. I wish it had been better for all parties involved. I'm sorry for any pictures you're going to see online because they are pretty atrocious, but it'll give you a laugh. Yeah. Um, as always, you can follow us on social media. I know we've said this before, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you'll get us there. Um, um, and you can listen to us on Spotify and iTunes, iTunes as well. iTunes and yeah, whatever else you get your podcast, basically. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Yeah, I found it really fascinating. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go back and um, kick the cat out of the room because she's crunching away. (laughs) So, um, yeah, this was interesting, I think. (laughs) Glad that you enjoyed it. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode where Sarah will be discussing Casey Anthony. So until then, see you later. Bye. Bye.